what independent ski areas can do that larger resorts can't do is, but it kind of turns skiing into bowling in the sense that maybe once or twice a winter, you take your family to a smaller independent regional ski area and you have a great day. It doesn't cost you $2,000. You're close to the house. If you know your kid has a meltdown, you're not stressed to the nines because you've spent your monthly recreation budget on two hours. I think ultimately these independent ski areas are just smart enough to stop trying to be like a large resort. Welcome to the storm. I'm your host, Stuart Winchester. I am loving these small New England indies lately. So how about we do another one? Before we get you to New Hampshire, I want to remind you to please pop over to stormskiing.com and subscribe to the Storm Skiing newsletter. Twitter has been a mess lately. Facebook is always a rough place to hang out. Instagram, frankly, is just too focused on video these days. The newsletter is where I can do what I want and not have to worry about some fickle algorithm. And because of that, the Storm Skiing newsletter is the heart of this whole operation. That is where the biggest audience is by far, way larger than on any of my social accounts. And that is where I put in the most effort and focus. This podcast episode, for example, has an accompanying article on stormskiing.com that adds a ton of additional context to our conversation. And frankly, the podcast is just a small part of the storm. I am analyzing the world of lift served skiing with a minimum of 100 articles per year in the Storm Skiing newsletter. Please join me there. And if you do still want to follow me on social, I am certainly still there and posting every single day. You can follow the Storm on Twitter, Instagram, or brand new here, threads at Storm Ski Journal. Twitter has been my main platform for a long time now, but I am really digging threads. And honestly, I think everyone else is too. Before we get to Dartmouth Skiway, today's episode of the Storm Skiing Podcast is brought to you by Excesso Paradox, the all-in-one mountain management solution designed by ski people for ski resorts. Currently leveraged by more than 50 resorts across North America to optimize both operations and their guest experience, Excesso Paradox is considered one of the most powerful ski-specific operating systems on the market. The flexible, integrated solution empowers ski areas to take full control of their operations across ticketing and passes, retail and equipment rental, food and beverage, administration, and online sales. Plus, with its integrated snow school management, Excesso Paradox allows guests to schedule with ease, save time, and enjoy an enhanced experience across your resort. The platform also empowers you to expand your season by managing year-round activities, from mountain biking to hiking, luge, and more. Excesso Paradox is backed by the world-class support, expertise, and partnership of Excesso Technology Group, the leading technology provider to leisure and entertainment worldwide. To learn more about Excesso Paradox, visit accesso.com. That's A-C-C-E-S-S-O.com. Episode 135, Mark Adamchek, General Manager of Dartmouth Skiway, New Hampshire. 
sometimes it helps not to worry about what you don't have, but to be grateful for what you do have. Dartmouth Skiway is an excellent example of this. In a state filled with 2,000 footers, rippling with high-speed lifts, and sitting right off the interstate, Dartmouth is just a bit smaller, a bit slower, and a bit harder to get to than its competitors. No one is going to mistake Dartmouth Skiway for Loon Mountain or Waterville Valley or Cannon or Bretton Woods. But here's what Dartmouth Skiway does have. Unflinching support from its Ivy League mothership and an incredibly loyal and passionate group of locals. It is also a pretty nice size little mountain if all you need is a day on the bump with your kids. And because it's a bit harder to get to, Dartmouth Skiway doesn't turn into Boston North on the weekends like its Ski 93 cousins. Like Middlebury Snowball, which I featured on this podcast recently, Dartmouth Skiway gives us a twist on that singular American fusion of higher education and sports. And just like Middlebury, it's a place that most New England skiers have probably overlooked. Let's see what we're all missing out on. My guest today has been general manager of Dartmouth Skiway for three years. Owned by Dartmouth College in New Hampshire, Dartmouth Skiway offers 104 skiable acres across two peaks on a 968-foot vertical drop served by two chairlifts and two carpets. Prior to joining the team at Dartmouth Skiway in 2020, he spent several years working at Winter Park, Colorado. Mark Adamchek is my guest. Mark, welcome to the storm. I always love talking New Hampshire and New England skiing. How are you doing on this June Monday? Thanks for having me, Stuart. I'm doing very well. It's a really nice day in Lyme, New Hampshire. The lupin are blooming, and uh, it's not too smoky, uh, so we're having a great day. Love that. So let's get right into the, the 22 to 23 ski season here. Mark, how did your ski season go at Dartmouth Skiway? It went really well. In terms of skier visits, we were up from the previous year and uh, had a lot of great days. I think at certain times emotionally, it felt a, a little less great. It was certainly up and down. You know, you'd make snow and you'd watch it melt. If you would have asked me that question in December, I probably would have a, a different answer. But uh, in the long view, it was an excellent season and March came through for us. And uh, we had a lot of great days uh, on the mountain. And we were able to get the ski team out training quite a bit and uh, all the school groups through. And uh, we had a lot of fun, a lot of fun on the hills today, uh, this season. So you mentioned skier visits were up this past season for the 2021 to 22 ski season. You reported 38,000 skier visits. So Dartmouth Skiway is one of the few ski areas in New England that's public with those numbers, given your nonprofit status. But that was an increase of 2000 from the 2020 to 21 campaign. Do you have the exact number yet of, of skiway visits for 22, 23? We, we, uh, we finished right around 40,000 visits for the season, still doing a little calculations on, uh, on some of the things it's hard, hard historically, the numbers are, are quite different and, and the methodology for counting skier visits. So it's, it's hard to tell over the, the full run of, of the area, how busy we are, but I, I think this past season could have been one of the busiest we've ever had. If you look down the history, there's some really large numbers uh, in the past years that I'm not sure what those seasons were like. M must have been much longer, uh, much better snow conditions. But um, we, we made our magic carpets free. So those skier visits count. So when you consider that, I think we're busy and certainly it feels vibrant here when we have snow and, and we have kind of good conditions. We get solid visitation. It's a really 
engaged, active skiing community in this part of New Hampshire. So you mentioned the potential longer seasons and seasons past. For 21-22, you were open 93 days. How did that stack up to 22-23? This season, I think we ended up with 96 days and we were closed three due to weather where we were we were here ready to go. So we were so close to 100. We were a little, we were a little disappointed to not get it. But the quantity uh, was solid and up from last year. And more than that, the operations team just did a, a, a really great job to keep the quality up. And while our days were up a little bit, we ran all of our lifts more than we ever have in the past. We were able to you know, get our staffing in the right place, get our snowmaking in the right place, and have both sides of the area open almost double the amount of days of the previous season which really makes oh, wow. the place ski a lot better. What's your program at Darby Ski? What do you op- which side do you open first? And is it always the same side first? I am the new kid on the block by a serious factor around here. From what I understand, historically, they would open the Winslow side first. And that has our quad on it and some really fun terrain. This year, for the first time, you know, this is at least what some of the folks tell me, that this was the first time that we started making snow on the Holt side. The Holt side is a little bit steeper, but it also has our GS race course. So we decided to make snow starting on that. It takes a lot of snow to get that surface to the depth and consistency that the NCAA ski team needs to start training. So we decided to start there and get that big chunk of snowmaking out of the way. And then we could, you know, sort of move more quickly through our other trails. While it's only one trail, it's close to 40% of our snowmaking. One, it's a very big trail. And two, it's a a thick surface that we're making for that team. So we made that trail first called uh, Dunwarden Shoosh. And then you put a snow road up and connect that. So that was the first time we've done it. We really liked the way it skied. It allowed us to have both sides of the mountain open more. It doubles the terrain when you have two lifts running. Pretty much no matter how much open terrain we have, it tends to mirror itself. So a lot of positive feedback from the community on uh, tweaking that opening formula. And really proud of the mountain operations team for getting it done. And we were happy with the way it came out for the season. So it's an interesting trend here, Mark, if we back up a little bit. That's two years in a row of increased skier visits. and we haven't had the best seasons in New England the past couple of years. I mean, yes, you had the Miracle March this year and that saved it for everybody. And that was great. And that was a lot of fun. And I think we all had a chance to get out and enjoy that. However, there must be something else going on here because as you surveyed the New England ski scene, there's been a lot of competition over the past several years. And that competition has really evolved in a way that was supposed to be very tough for independent ski areas like the Skiway. And that's the introduction of the Icon Pass in 2018, the introduction of Northeast Pacific Epic Passes for the 2020 to 21 ski season. Why do you suppose that the Skiway continues to see increases in skier visits and seems to be stabilizing in a really nice way, even as this corporate mega pass competition has intensified? Yeah, I think consolidation is is challenging for, for independent ski areas. There's no doubt about that. For like a core skier, the value proposition of those passes is undeniable. What independent ski areas can do that larger resorts can't do is, uh, this is maybe not the best analogy, but it kind of turns skiing into bowling, I I would kind of liken it to, in the sense that maybe once or twice a winter, you take your family to a smaller independent regional ski area, 
and you have a great day. It doesn't cost you $2,000. It doesn't take hours in the car. It doesn't take a huge investment in equipment. You're close to the house. If you know, your kid has a meltdown, you're not stressed to the nines because you, you know, you've spent your, uh, your monthly recreation budget on two hours. And even at a place like the Skiway and other places that I, you know, I'm becoming familiar with in New England, you can come and you can park close. It's very easy. And I just think while it's clearly the same industry and there's a tremendous overlap, I think ultimately these independent ski areas, at least as I'm becoming more familiar with them, are just smart enough to stop trying to be like a large resort. It's a completely different product. And I think that that sort of leaning into that idiosyncratic feel of each place is really attractive. And I think, you know, COVID helped remind people they had the time and the space and it helped remind people what an amenity and how great it is to be able to get outside of these smaller areas in the winter. You know, it's, it's so interesting, Mark, and this was not how it was supposed to go, right? Everyone, not everyone, but a lot of people got really spooked when Vale and Altera and the Icon Pass and the Epic Pass really came into New, New England because they were supposed to really make it make life difficult for these independent ski areas. But what I'm hearing from you echoes a lot of what I'm hearing from other small ski area operators. And I had Mike Hussey, the general manager of Middlebury Snowball on this podcast just a few weeks ago. And obviously a lot of parallels between the skiway and the Snowball as far as their relationship to a college and everything else. But one thing that they have in common is that you're both sitting in really tough ski neighborhoods. But what's happened with the Snowball is that it was overlooked forever and ever. And now that Sugarbush and Killington, obviously great ski areas sitting on their side, have really cranked up those lift ticket prices, a lot of people are saying, okay, well, the ski bowl is not as big as those areas, but it's still good. It has 1,000 feet of vert, about the same as the skiway. And it can give us a good day of skiing, a good, simple, affordable day of skiing, that sort of bowling experience that you were describing. Do you find that in a weird way, maybe this consolidation and this these price increases that we're seeing for day tickets for maybe those infrequent series, is, is that actually in a way been good for independent ski areas like the skiway? Uh, yeah, I think, I mean, good is, is a little bit challenging, challenging to say. I, I think it makes it more competitive and it's not necessarily a level playing field with the resources that those corporations have. But I do think it makes more people do a little more research and dig a little deeper and investigate the options that they have to go skiing. And I think to your point, people who are used to skiing those bigger mountains are remembering like, oh, I can still scratch the itch at a smaller place, right? Dartmouth Ski White is not Killington, but it's still skiing and it's still a really fun day on the mountain. And it still provides you all of those things that make you fall in love with the sport in the first place. So it sounds like you had a great season here, Mark. And, you know, the, the weather finally turned in your favor toward the end. I, I'm just curious backing up here a little bit how do you stay motivated through a long season when you have these stretches of warm weather where maybe you're only able to have just the very basic foundations of the trail network open and and it, I, I imagine it's frustrating for your team too how do you stay motivated how do you keep the team motivated through those long stretches when things just aren't really going your way yeah right uh, that certainly was the case at certain times this year I think the, the first thing that we try to do is expect it. 
we don't tell ourselves in October that we're going to get 45 days of perfect snowmaking and be rolling our hoses and calling it a winter on uh, January 15th. We know that it's a slog and we know that it's going to be a long snowmaking season. And we just try to remind ourselves that when the weather window cooperates, that we are organized and ready to take advantage of it. And while it's disappointing to watch your snow melt when you've made it, when you have that approach of like, okay, we're just gonna focus on the next opportunity we have to make snow and give a product to our guests. It really helps with that mindset. Our mountain operations manager does a great job with the snowmaking crew to keep them positive. Pizza goes a long way. You know, it's a real community here at the Skiway where if you're out there grooming and making snow and doing things for our guests to get out and enjoy the mountain, you hear a lot of thank yous. You hear a lot of great jobs. You hear a lot of, wow, you guys have made a lot with a little, and, and that goes a long way. And quite frankly, we just try to remind ourselves that operating is fun. You know, we really love to operate the ski area and we want to operate it for as long as we can and try to remember that. What we're out here to do is to get people outside, generate some endorphins in a long New Hampshire winter and get smiles on faces and, and have a good time. And, and people have to show up and do a lot harder things at their work than we do to make snow for people to, to have fun and ski. We feel pretty lucky a lot of the time. So along those lines of being prepared, Mark, you, you did a couple things at the Skiway this year that made it a little easier for folks who maybe haven't tried to ski there before to come and check it out. And one of those was the Indy Pass Allied Resorts program, and another was the No Boundaries Pass. Let's talk about the Indy Pass Allied Resorts program first. Why did you join that program, and how did the first season go? What Doug has done with the Indy Pass has been really interesting to see. I'm excited to continue to watch them grow. And the way that they designed that Allied program, it's hard to find a reason to say no. Right? You got to expose your ski area to a group of people at really very low cost to ski area. And you know, the interesting thing about the ski way is like we're this we're this little area in the upper valley, but the, the people who ski here are skiers. So my hunch, and while I don't know this for sure, is I think if you have a ski way pass, at least half of our pass holders hold at least one more pass. And I think a lot of them are already holding an Indy Pass. So, and we definitely saw some increased visitation through that. But I think a lot of people in that Indy network were sometimes coming through the skiway. But we definitely heard people say, oh, you know, we've never been here before and we were on the Indy Pass. So we decided we'd come check it out. And what people find is that they come here on a Tuesday, you're skiing with a couple hundred of your closest friends and, and you're getting as many laps as your legs can handle. So, one of the advantages of being on the Indy Pass, even on the Allied program, is, is your pass holders, as you just mentioned, many of them hold a second pass, but they can actually add on an Indy Pass at a discount. And I mean, in New England, that's just such a steal because that means you get a couple days at JP, a couple days at Cannon, a couple days at Waterville, a couple days at Black Mountain up in New Hampshire, a couple days at, at Magic Mountain in Bolton Valley and Saddleback. So and none of those places are super hard to get to with the exception of maybe Saddleback from the Skiway. Anecdotally, are you finding that a lot of your pass holders were fired up for this partnership just for that reason? 
Absolutely. I think a lot of the people, the, you know, the skiers in this community were traveling to these places often anyway, and this just made it so much easier to get on the Indy Pass and go check out these places. They're all so different and really interesting. Uh, being new to the ski culture of New England, it's really fun to go around to these places and check them out and get a different feel for each mountain. And yeah, our pass holders are definitely traveling and checking out these places. Occasionally when we get a big snow at the skiway, while we definitely get busy, you do kind of see some of those core skiing pass holders. I think they're uh, going off to some of the bigger mountains to get some bigger turns in. So again, you know, Mike Hussey over at Middlebury Snowball also put his ski resort on the Indy Allied program this past year. And for the listeners who are not familiar, if you're an Allied resort, Essentially, Indy Pass holders get half off on weekdays and 25% off of rack rate lift tickets on weekends and holidays. So it's not the two tickets that you get as a full partner. He, what he told me, Mark, was that at the Snowball, they were happy to be part of the program, but they were getting some confusion among Indy Pass holders who showed up and expected that ticket to be included. Did you have that experience at the Skiway or, or for the most part, were the people who showed up well-versed? What, is that something the Indy Pass still needs to do a little bit better job of communicating or how did that go for you? You know, we didn't see much of that, but we definitely had to do some guest training on how you get your pass, what it means to be allied. There were certainly initially when we announced the allied partnership, people who thought we were part of the Indy Pass, which obviously we are not. But uh, no, we, we saw people coming expecting to get the discount rather than a free ticket. You know, it's a pretty good deal at the skiway anyway. So I would assume people who did have to pay would probably find it a pretty fair deal. Would you like to join the Indy Pass as a full partner? You know, I'm not, sh- I'm not sure, given our mission and the way that our business is run and what we're here to do, I'm not certain it would make the most sense for the skiway. We don't have large ancillary business units and where we're at now with the lodge, we're already sort of maxed out on a lot of our ancillary business units. You know, we don't have any lodging. So I'm not certain it would make a ton of sense for us other than it would really be wonderful exposure to get people on our mountain and see. But, you know, a big part of our mission involves supporting the college, both in recreation and PE and athletics. So, you know, balancing those parts of the mission and those stakeholders is really important. And we have to sort of be cautious of how busy we make the ski web. Well, uh, I love when it's busy here. I think we have to, you know, we have to really balance those, uh, those user groups. Do you have any other limiting factors right now, Mark? Did you have plenty of parking? Is What's controlling capacity at the moment? Yeah, it's a parking lot. During COVID, we didn't have to worry about reservations or anything like that because we have far more uphill capacity than we do places to park. Is that a solvable problem? Do you have room to potentially expand your parking lot or build a satellite lot? Or is there just too many restrictions in the land around you? There are certainly some restrictions to the land around us, but I, I think it's a solvable problem. What we want to do at the Skiway is, is sort of more consistently replicate the problem before we solve it. We're definitely, <laughs> we're, we're seeing it. We're, we're proud of those days that were full, but it's not full every day. So we're, uh, we're going to keep working hard to have to solve that problem. All right. So back to the Indy Pass here for a moment. Indy has released their preliminary list of full partners for the 2023 to 24 ski season. They have not released the allied 
list yet. Do you intend to put the ski wave back on the Indy Allied program for the 2023 to 24 ski season? Yeah, I think so. I think we'll, we'll continue with that relationship. I think it's in line with the mission at the ski way. And I, I think it's positive for the ski way and our pass holders and just for skiing in general. So let's talk about the no boundaries pass here for a moment. This is an interesting product, very regional, just four ski areas were on this this year. It was the Skiway, Whaleback, also in New Hampshire, Tenney, which just reopened also in New Hampshire, and Mount Abram just across the border in Maine, there near Sunday River. And they had a really interesting points system set up where you bought this pass, it was just $99, and you would get coupons for each ski area. So you'd get three coupons for the Skiway. And if you showed up on a Saturday or a holiday, it was all three coupons to exchange for a lift ticket. If you showed up on a Sunday, it was two coupons. And if you showed up on a random Tuesday in February, it was one coupon. So you could get up to three days at the skiway, or maybe it was one depending on when you wanted to come. And it was like that with all the ski areas. Just setting that up for the listeners. What appealed to you about the No Boundaries Pass? Why did you join that coalition? And and how did that first year go? I think COVID year might have been the first year we started working with No Boundaries. It's super small. I think it's two guys in Connecticut. And we just liked what they were trying to do because they're just trying to make it easy for people to go skiing and not break the bank. You know, we were in a position where we thought we could help support that. And we see ourselves kind of in the, the same vein as Whaleback and Tenny. We're a little bit better resourced, certainly, and fortunate to be in that position. But we just thought it was a really good opportunity to help get more people skiing, small ski areas. We didn't see huge usership from No Boundaries, but we certainly got some people on the mountain with it, and we were happy to do that. Do you think that you will return to that pass for the 2023-24 ski season? I believe they intend to run it back. Yeah, I think we probably will. They're doing that off the corner of their desk while they have full-time real jobs. So I'm always kind of curious if they'll be able to pull it off, but it seems like they're pretty well organized and they'll do it again. And I think we'll continue to participate in it. So lots of exploration, trying new things for you here. You mentioned that you're getting to know the New England ski scene and that you'd spend some time out West. I mentioned that in the introduction. Uh, where did you grow up, Mark? Did you grow up skiing? Not exactly. Uh, my dad was in the army growing up, so I, I didn't really grow up anywhere. Or perhaps I grew up everywhere. I went skiing every once in a while, you know, maybe through like a Boy Scouts or a youth group or, or something like that. But in high school, we were stationed at West Point in New York. And my first job was uh, at a, as a lift operator at uh, Victor Constance Ski Slope, which is run by a uh, Morale, welfare, and recreation could be changed now as quite a while ago. And that's kind of my first taste of being able to ski more than some random weekend once or twice a, a winter. I really fell in love with skiing at that point, but even still didn't do it all that much outside of just when I was at work. And then in, I was living in Philadelphia and had some friends who started patrolling up at Mount Snow and going up there for weekends and, and really kind of getting a feel for a little bit larger of a mountain and what it was like to work at a ski area and what it was like to really ski every day and, and get strong and really commit yourself to having fun every day on the hill. And uh, that, that sort of captured my imagination. I decided I was gonna try to do it and just applied to nearly every ski area in the country, well, you know, Vermont and California and Colorado. And ended up at Winter Park somewhat randomly. I had a strong mountain bike scene in the summer 
it was a smaller town and it was close enough to Denver where I felt like um, I wasn't too far in it. And uh, it ended up being a, a really wonderful decision, although I only intended to be there for maybe a year. <laughs> well, growing up with that lifestyle of moving every year or two, you probably get used to that, right? Taking it for granted that you'll always move somewhere different. So you, you land in Winter Park. What kept you there? And what was that time in your life like? What did you do? So I, I started as a lift operator my first winter out there. And I think we got you know, 400 inches of snow that year. So it was just uh, incredible. And I could barely ski powder. I was a terrible skier. I spent most of the winter just cartwheeling everywhere and, and being humble. But it was really, really fun. And it really captured my imagination. I had never lived in mountains like that. The Indian Peaks are a spectacular section of the Rockies. And I just wanted to do whatever I could to stay out there and pay my bills and be able to continue to live out there. So I went from being a lift operator and just incremental promotions. I became a crew leader for the summer program. And then the next winter, I was able to become a a lift supervisor, and and then I became a lift manager where I got to be in charge of you know one third of the mountain of lift operations, which at Winter Park is you know a little under 100 employees. You're in charge of about 10 lifts, and then that's where they give you a salary, and it's year round, and you get insurance. And even then, I thought maybe I'd come back towards Philadelphia or New York and get a real job, but I was able to pay my bills, and before you know it, I was able to continue to be promoted. And after running lifts for a, a few years, I was able to take over summer operations and lift operations through tubing in there for, for good fun. And I learned a, a lot running those business units and went from just purely operations to you know managing revenue generation and, and guest service and really managing the guest journey and learned a ton and really, really enjoyed it. So that, that sort of incremental promotion kept going on until we, we decided that we'd roll some of those business units together and develop a, you know, a new small division at Winter Park and try to add in some guided skiing and riding and some other tour-based and sort of more experiential-based services, including you know, we'd take people hiking in Rocky Mountain National Park and some things like that, where we were just trying to really show people, hey, if you come and get a guide, we can really show you the mountain in a way that, that you might not experience on your own, both in summer and winter. Uh, and that was really interesting. And I did that for the last you know, two years outside Winter Park. So it, you were there during a really interesting time. So you arrived in 2006 and you're working your way up and through it. And, and I, I appreciate the Winter Park is always a busy place and it's close to Denver. But that would have corresponded with, in 2018, the arrival of the Icon Pass. And I realize Winter Park has been on large passes with Interwest and et cetera for a long time. But the Icon Pass is just a whole different level in the way it was nationally marketed and brought in new people to Winter Park. Just curious from your point of view, Mark, how Winter Park changed when the Icon Pass came along in 2018, if it did. Yeah, I think Icon visitation did change Winter Park a little bit. I think it helped open them up to more destination visitors. In some ways, it kind of gave it the prominence that I think it deserved. You know, Winter Park was like the busiest ski area you've never heard of. And everybody in Denver knew it. Everybody in Denver grew up skiing there. But kind of out, you know, if I were to come back to New York and tell people that I worked at Winter Park, they would have no idea what I was talking about or think I lived in Florida. Right. <laughs> so 
I think it changed Winter Park. You know, I haven't been there in three years. I would imagine it's changed more COVID and as the icon has, you know, it's always successful. It's pretty incredible to watch how successful it was right off the bat, but it felt somewhat business as usual. Winter Park is, is awesome. The skiing is terrific. And anytime I talk to anyone who has worked there, they had a terrific experience doing so. And you're the second resort head that I've had on of a small ski area that also spent a lot of time out there. The last one was Tim Meyer, who runs a small ski area with his family in Michigan called Caberfay. And he was under a little bit different circumstance because his father and uncle had owned the ski area and brought it back in the 80s. And then he moved out to Winter Park, spent several years out there and eventually moved back to run Caberfay. But nonetheless, I, I want to ask you the same question I asked him, which is, you're in this paradise. It's awesome in the winter. It's awesome in the summer. You get all this snow. It's terrific terrain. Why did you leave? What, what how did the opportunity come up to run the ski way and, and what made you take it and turn away from Winter Park? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. I certainly miss the skiing out there. However, there's a few things. One, you know, your life changes. While I was in Winter Park, I got married. I had a kid. When I made the decision to come to the skiway, my son Jack was two, and we, my wife Taryn and I had another one on the way. And a, a resort town is it's challenging to upgrade your housing to meet your family's needs. And also, my wife is from Massachusetts and felt strongly about coming back to New England, which was something I didn't fully understand. But having been here for three years, I, I understand it now. It's a really wonderful place to have a family, and there's a, a ton to do. And... Um, We've been very happy here. So I, I kind of had a long-standing agreement with my wife that if there was a ski industry job in New England, I would apply. And so I'm sure everybody is as excited to get their copy of Ski Area Management Magazine as I am every month. <laughs> and I saw the ad and Sam and applied. And that's how it happened. Interestingly, though, at Winter Park, my boss at the time was a Dartmouth grad. So I, I looked for, I looked at a poster of Dartmouth Winter Carnival in his office for a bunch of years and then eventually came out and I'm running the place now. So how did he react when you got that job? Did he think that was cool? Yeah, he got a good laugh at it because he went to Dartmouth and grew up in Hanover. So, you know, he, oh, grew, no, up, he grew up skiing here. So I think it was a little bit of an interesting full circle moment for him, maybe. That's amazing. So you get this opportunity and it's a great opportunity for you and for your family. Not the best timing ever. You arrive in April, 2020. I imagine that was a several month process and that you'd already had that, that agreement and uh, been hired. But nonetheless, you arrive in April, 2020. Really, really interesting time in the world and in the ski industry. How did you approach those first few months as you're not only learning a new ski area, but learning a new way to run a ski area as everything we ever knew about running one got turned upside down. Yeah, yeah a lot of deep breaths in April of 2020, for sure. You know, in some ways, I think COVID almost made it easier in the sense that the expectations were so low. By the time we were able to develop a plan that the college was comfortable with us operating, people were just so happy to get out of their house and get some fresh air and get some exercise that I don't think it mattered very much what we were doing or how well we were doing it. They were just so excited to go skiing and we were really happy to uh, let them do it. But yeah, figuring it out was a challenge. And one of the more challenging things was figuring out how you modify your systems to be able to do, you know, all of these interfaces touch free. And that's challenging no matter what. And it's especially challenging when you, when you barely know the systems. 
So it was a little bit of a crash course and we learned a lot and we came out of COVID, you know, understanding that we had some work to do to update some of the systems that we were using to run the ski area through ticketing and things like that. So while you were learning how to run a ski area during COVID, I imagine you also had a lot of learning to do about the ski area itself. And it's a really unique place. It's one of the few ski areas in the country that is owned by a college. So just lay this out for us, Mark. Why does Dartmouth College own a ski area? And what is that relationship like between the college and the ski area? They own the ski area because of a long and storied tradition of skiing in this area and you know, specific to Dartmouth. I think it starts with the outing club, which is you know, the oldest outing club in America. And skiing was a big part of Dartmouth in the early 1900s. And they initially installed some tow ropes and T-bars, I think in, at Oak Hill, which is in Hanover. Now it's a site of a cross country ski area. I'm a little bit nervous to talk about the history of Dartmouth and skiing because so many people know it so much better than me. But, um, you know, there's been a Dartmouth athlete in the Olympics every year. There's been a Winter Olympics. You know, like I said, my boss at Winter Park was a Dartmouth grad. The first CEO, president of Winter Park, Stephen Bradley, was a Dartmouth grad. He invented grooming, essentially, out at Winter Park. There's just no shortage of people who came through Dartmouth, who then went out into the ski industry and contributed in a lot of ways. It's pretty incredible. It's rare that you take over a ski area and there's not one, but two books about the, the area that you're taking over and the history of it. And, uh, or, and, and on top of that, a, a PBS documentary. Wow. So it was really, really interesting to learn all of that and all of the, the connections to you know, modern skiing and both in you know lift service and exploration it's just it's pretty incredible what uh what the college has been able to contribute to the industry so a really strong relationship it sounds like between the college and the ski area again not, not to keep going back to middlebury snowball but there's just a lot of parallels here uh, mike hussey told me that one of his challenges was helping folks understand that the snowball is open to the public is that a challenge you face do people think that this that the skiway is just for people who go to the college or work at the college? Or, or is that better understood in your neighborhood that this is a public ski area? I think there's a, w within the neighborhood, I think a lot of people understand that it's open to the public. I think part of that is our, you know, we do so many school groups and there's a local ski club that's not tied specifically to the ski web. And I think that for many years, they ran a recreation program. And I think that let a lot of people know but it certainly was a challenge and something that I wanted to address in my time here. And we've made some efforts on the marketing front to let people who are interested in skiing know through Google and Meta that Skiway is open and available for everybody. You mentioned earlier your strong focus on the various constituencies who relied on the Skiway for one thing or another. And I, and I imagine that you meant those sort of local student groups and the racers and different college students. Just break those groups down for us here, Mark. Who who do you have to make sure that the Skiway is there for and, and make sure that they have easy access to it and that it's doing what they need it to do? Yeah, you know, you know, it's an amenity to the college for most people who are affiliated with the college. So, you know, staff and faculty and students come out here and recreate and ski because it's a close, it's easy, and it's a, a beautiful place to ski. 
And then there's the college ski team that relies on the ski way to train and to make sure that they don't have to spend hours and hours in a van to get the training that they need to be competitive. It's very, very, very competitive. And it's an incredibly high level of skiing that you see out here through that team. So th those are the two big stakeholder groups. And then there's the local ski club, Ford Sayre Ski Club, one of the oldest ski clubs in America. And they've, they've got a lot of youth racing programs and they're relying on us to get a good surface and get them out to train. And then there's the general public who want to come out and ski at a place uh, that doesn't break the bank and is close to their homes. So the skiway is not right in town. It's about a 20 minute or, well, correct me where I'm wrong here, but it's it's a little bit of a ride up to the ski area. How do you make sure that those different groups have easy access? You know, a lot of students might necessarily not necessarily have a car. Are there shuttles? How do you make sure that the school and the ski area are connected physically? Yeah, that's one of the big problems that we want to solve is, you know, at least emotionally close the distance between campus and the skiway. We're about 13 miles north of campus in Lyme Center, which is about as quintessential a New England place as you could be. You know, it's got a couple churches and a post office and, and a great country store, maybe a restaurant or two. So we do that one by just making sure that people know that we're open and how to get a hold of us and make sure our website is, is up to date and clean. And then we run shuttles for the students every day that the skiway is open and winter term is in session. You can get a ride to the skiway for free from Hanover. And uh, we did that this year every day and uh, it was really successful. And it was great to see, you know, less personal cars come out and keep off the road. And then also, you know, get students who don't have cars out to the skiway and join do you run those shuttles just a couple times a day? Is there a, a, a schedule throughout the day? How, how do you set that up? So I imagine sometimes with students, they only might have a couple hours, right? Between classes or or before their first class where, where they want to just come out and get some turns. How did you work that schedule? Yeah, the students at Dartmouth are busy there. They have a lot of studying to do and a lot of classwork to do. So during the week, we do a morning and an afternoon shuttle. So you can get a ride out, ski for a couple hours and get a ride back. And then on weekends where we really see a lot of student visitation, they run every hour, two, two shuttles every hour. So for those who aren't familiar with Dartmouth College here, Mark, give us a Dartmouth College 101. I'd imagine most folks know it's an Ivy League university, obviously a big deal. But just tell us about Dartmouth College and, and what it's known for and what it's like to be there. Yeah, I feel like the least qualified person to speak on this, but I'll do, I'll do my best. You know, it's a great school that focuses research and, and liberal arts education. And they've got these incredible graduate schools, you know, Thayer for engineering, Tuck for business, and Geisel for med school. I think what makes Dartmouth unique is the breadth of things that you can study when you're here. A lot of the students are graduating with dual degrees and in these really interesting dual disciplines. About 98% of our patrol hours are done by uh, students volunteering through uh, Dartmouth Ski Patrol. That's most of my student interaction or chatting with the patrollers and seeing what they're studying and, and what they're going out in the world and doing is really interesting. All of the opportunities that, that Dartmouth has, basically it seems like if you can think to study it, Dartmouth can teach you how to study it. And what's the relationship like, Mark, between the skiway and the college? From And I mean this from a financial point of view. Does the college subsidize the skiway? Is the skiway independent? What can you tell us about that relationship? So the, the skiway is considered an auxiliary 
at the college. And I think that's probably changed over the years. Maybe in the past it was run through athletics. And it does sit in this interesting place where we're an amenity for students, uh, we're a facility for athletics, we're a business because we do generate revenue, but the, the college places us as an auxiliary. So we're, we're fully funded through the college and the student passes are subsidized through the college. And the college contributes a lot to the ski community. If you're uh, a kid in line, you ski at the skiway for free. And that's been that way since the skiway opened. So there's about 1,200, the population online is about 1,200. All of those kids ski here for free until they're 21. So it's a great deal. And employees can get a very inexpensive pass. We uh, have a great relationship with Dartmouth-Hitchcock Medical Center. They also get access to discounted passes and then students get a screening deal. Uh, almost as good as Middlebury, where I think first-year students ski for free. Nice. That's beautiful. Long-term, is there any sort of pressure from the school to make the skiway more self-sustaining? Or is this just something that it's built into the budget and Dartmouth is okay subsidizing this? Or do they want it to stand on its own a little bit more? I wouldn't say there's any pressure from the college. We generate a revenue and we want to be financially responsible, but I think, you know, it's very intentional how the college is subsidizing these activities for students and the community. And I think that, you know, that aspect of community engagement and being a good neighbor is as important to the college as financial performance. So there's a new organization called Friends of the Skiway. I'm not sure if this is something that you started, Mark, if this is something that has come about independently, but tell us about Friends of the Skiway, how that organization was formed and what its mission is. So the Friends groups are a common fundraising mechanism at the college. Nearly every organization has a Friends group. Uh, Interestingly, when I got here, there was no Friends group for the Skiway. So in sort of looking around and seeing how we could generate more resources for the skiway and continue to improve the operation. That fundraising mechanism was an area that we wanted to explore. So we created a friends group, which is through the college, the Office of Advancement, and to speak with people and ask for uh, contributions to improve the operation at the skiway. We've done, we've been a group for two years and really, really uh, blown away at the response from the community and what we've been able to do to improve the mountain. You know, not everything is incredibly fun to do. Things like drainage or realigning a magic carpet aren't the most fun things to, to talk about, but they really improve the ski experience and they really, they really make the mountain better for huge user groups. So we've been excited to be able to chip away at some of these things with the help of the friends group. How much do you align those specific projects with your fundraising requests, Mark? When you go out and try to get support for the friends group, do you say, okay, we are specifically doing this to, as you said, realign this magic carpet? That's the approach that your neighbor, John Hunt at Wellback tends to take, which is, okay, we need this new surface lift for racers and your contribution is going exactly for this project. Are you intentional with that, or is it more of just a general fund where you say, okay, the skiway needs to achieve these 10 things and your contributions long-term will help us evolve toward that point? It's much more the latter. You know, there's a, a whole nother process for capital improvements. Like when they built this lodge, that was a whole different campaign. 
in a completely different fundraising mechanism. So what we're asking for the friends is exactly what you outlined. We're asking for Thrawd's support to improve the operation as needed. As you mentioned, when you arrive, there are two books written on the skiway, and there sounds like there's tremendous local affinity for this place. So it is surprising that there wasn't a friends group in place already. Have you found good momentum here? Have you found a lot of folks saying, oh yeah, I I mean, of course we need this. This is great. Or has it been a little bit more of a slog to build this thing up? The community is so engaged and so ready to help and so interested in skiing that it has not, it's not been a slog at all. It's been really rewarding and interesting to learn how to package that information and then take these resources and get the best value out of what people are are giving you to benefit the most of the user groups. It's been really, really interesting and rewarding. All right, Mark, let's talk about the ski area itself here. We've talked around this a little bit, but there's two peaks. There's Winslow and there's Holtz Ledge, and they're basically across the street from each other. So you can't, as far as I understand, ski between them unless maybe you get a snowy day and you can ski across the road. But just lay this out for us for listeners who are not familiar with Dartmouth Skiway, just the physical structure of the mountain. And if there's anything you can tell us about how that evolved and then what makes each peak distinct? It is a very interesting ski area in that a road does run right down the middle of it. Grafton Turnpike Road is right down the middle. When I first saw that, I thought, well, that seems like an interesting idea. And I was a little worried, but it's not a terribly busy road and it's quite rural, but kind of in a neighborhood. So people are incredibly respectful and it sort of takes care of itself. But initially the ski area was built on the Holtz ledge side. So that was in 1956 and they built in, I could be a little bit off on on my years here. I'm I'm not a perfect expert, but they built a Palma in Roto and had great success on the Holtz side. So much so that they decided we need to expand. I think that was about 67 or so that they put another double on the Winslow side. And there you have it. Now it's across the road and, and there, there's a road running through your ski area. So those two peaks ski pretty different. The Winslow side is a little mellower, has some gladed skiing on it. And the Holt side is, is generally regarded as sort of the more advanced, steeper side. You know, to the lookers left of Don Worden's, you have a 400 foot cliff. So we've got some protection on the giant solemn course there. And it's just sort of a rugged, rockier section of terrain than opposite on the Winslow side. But both I kind of consider like really solid intermediate skiing with some green opportunities. And we do have a couple of uh, steep pitches on both sides. So I'll put this trail map uh, on the article that accompanies this podcast on stormskiing.com. But for those of you who are familiar with Dartmouth Skiway, for the listeners, the lodge actually is on the Winslow side. Do you find, Mark, that that keeps more skiers on that side of the ski area and that Holtz Ledge is a little sparser because of that? Or do people kind of naturally spread themselves out? People spread themselves out. And I think there's sort of a, something of a natural ability that splits the user groups between Holtz and Winslow. Winslow has some slightly wider trails where you see a lot of the younger families gravitating towards. That's where the magic carpets are. And it's sort of a, a been a natural progression. You start at the carpets, and then you get over the Winslow side. And when you talk to the people who've been skiing here for generations, I think there's sort of a rite of passage when you're maybe eight, nine, 10, you get to go ski on, on the whole side. And uh, right. 
ski some of the steeper terrain and ride the double and go take a peek off the cliff and you can see Ragged and Sunapeat from up there. It's quite a view. That's kind of the natural progression. But what we found when we installed RFID is that people ski Holtz more often, at least in terms of the number of rides per day. So when they do come out to ski, they tend to take more laps on Holtz than on Winslow. And you know, that could be ability, that could be conditions, there could be a, a whole lot of reasons for that. But it's been interesting to sort of understand those patterns, even though it's a small place and I can see the bottom of both flips from my office. It's nice to sort of understand that the data supports what you're thinking. Is there any desire or have there been discussions to actually connect the two? There's a ski area in northern New York called Titus and it has three peaks. And the third peak is separated from the other two by a road, but there's a tunnel that goes underneath. And, and there's other examples like that throughout the country, which, which is, you know, it, it would take a little bit of money, but it, it is possible to do these things. Is that something that the skiway would like to do long-term or, or, or do you like the fact that folks have to work a little bit to get over to Holtz Ledge? Yeah, I don't, I don't think we'll be installing the peak-to-peak -peak gondola at the skiway anytime <laughs> soon. I think that there's an opportunity at some point for safety just to take the road completely out of the equation. But people are cautious and we've got good systems in place to protect people. But no, I think that when we think about how we want the skiway to be and to feel, having to walk a little bit is, is just fine. So I mentioned in the intro, 968 feet of vertical drop at its highest point. There's quite a bit of vertical on each side above Winslow and Holtz Ledge. Just curious, why the lifts stop where they do, and if there's any ability or desire to run trails up the mountain at some future point. So I can, I can speak to the Holt side why that stops, and that's because the Appalachian Trail Corridor is the northern edge of uh, the skiway. So you can hike from the top of Holt's Ledge right to the top of Saddleback if you're willing to walk that far, right? <laughs> wow, amazing. <laughs> On the Winslow side, I don't know why it stops there because there is terrain above and we see a lot of our uphilling clientele exploring that little bit of extra vert quite often. So yeah, I think if, if we were to do a lift replacement, which I don't think would be on the quad anytime in the near future, I think it would be interesting to explore going up a little higher and uh, you, you would have better access to runs like MD if that were the case. And what would it take to make that happen? Does the college own the land up to the peaks of each side? The skiway, we end up skiing about 100 acres of the area and college owns uh, 140 uh, on this parcel. And is that all above the current list? Is there some looking to the left or right? Because if you look overhead on Google Maps, there's a lot of forest around the skiway. So what direction does that acreage go in? Right. So Holtz is limited by a cliff. If you lookers left is a pretty robust cliff. And then lookers right is the Appalachian Trail Corridor. On Winslow, lookers right is our, our cliffs. And then lookers left, there is some space uh, to the left of MD that has some interesting terrain on it. And I think if we were to ever demonstrate the need, there is an opportunity for expansion that way. That's another place that um, we set some uphill routes for people to go explore the woods over there on their way to the top. Is that, and I appreciate that you've only been at the scary for three years, but is that a plan that's sitting in a drawer somewhere? Have they talked about trying to build the ski way into a larger ski area or is it just, you know, it's a, 
it's a facility for the college. It's a small New England ski area. Maybe mid-sized is better because it's not like a little rope toe place like stores or something. But is the college pretty happy with the skiway being what it is? Or has there ever been talks of making it into something bigger? Whether there, there have been talks in the past, I haven't been privy to that. I think a big part of being hired for this job was to sort of help set that course. And I'm at a point now where I've been here long enough where I think I haven't I've learned enough and have enough input inputs where we can start, you know, talking about what does the skiway look like in 10, 15, 20 years. And I think terrain expansion could be part of that. I think there are a lot of other opportunities that will happen first. I think sustainability and improving the efficiency of our snowmaking system, both in terms of snowmaking output, but also in terms of carbon footprint, I think is the first thing that we operationally, ethically, all of those good reasons need to start addressing before terrain expansion. Just talk a little more about that sustainability piece, Mark. You put together a coalition actually of students who did a an environmental assessment of the skiway and made some recommendations about how you could reduce that carbon footprint, run the skiway more efficiently. Just talk a little bit about that process and why you did that and what you hope to do with that output. Yeah, so th- through the Thayer Engineering School, there's a, a program, the, the Cook Engineering Design Center. These students do a capstone project through one of the engineering courses, and they're looking for real-world solutions. They're trying to find actual places where they can go make some recommendations and help people solve problems. So I propose that one of these groups come take a look at the snowmaking system and the carbon footprint of the skiway overall. So for pretty inexpensive fee. We were able to have the the students do this project and five incredibly bright students, most of which were skiers, came out and poked around and asked questions and sorted through mountains of data to make these recommendations. And some of them were pretty obvious, but it was really important for the skiway to level set, to understand exactly what the scope of the problem was. And we understand now what we need to do to start chipping away at our carbon footprint. And I think the skiway is uniquely positioned given the size of the ski area, given how local most of our clientele is. You know, we're we're not battling these sort of downstream emissions problems that larger ski areas are, are facing of like people flying there and driving hours to get there. That's when we sort of analyze our larger carbon footprint, that's pretty minimal. And then when you combine the resources of the college, I think we've got great potential to be one of the most sustainable ski areas in the country. We can develop the right plan and implement it the right way. I think we're uniquely positioned to be able to do that. So specifically, what are those opportunities, Mark? The big two are pretty simple. It's electrification and on-site generation. Right now, our air compressors are run on diesel, and it's pretty disappointing when you watch your piles of snow melt, and the answer to it is, let's burn some more diesel and make more snow. You know, it's really hard to square that, and it's something that is necessary to create the product right now, but I'm not particularly proud of the way that we do it, and I think that we can and should do better. There's a couple different ways to approach that. One is to to create your own grid. And that's what Berkshire East did with their wind turbine down in Massachusetts. And I believe they're the only scary in the country that's generates 100% of their power on site. So there's, there's that piece of it is how are you generating your power? And then there's the efficiency 
of the plant and, you know, moderate snowmaking is very efficient. So do you have any thoughts on either of those things, reassessing how you generate that electricity and, and increasing the efficiency of the snowmaking that you do have? You're exactly right. We're at a point in our snowmaking system where it works great, but it's on the older side where we can solve this problem from both sides, right? We can improve access to our grid to get compressors that run on electricity, and we can also improve snowmaking system. We have we don't have any automation, so I think that as we automate and improve, upgrade our nozzles and improve that efficiency, we can kind of solve that problem from both ends. I like listening to uh, Chris Bombeck over at Pat's Peak. I think ultimately to be successful, small ski area, you have to be able to cover your mountain in you know 48 to 72 hours when you have the window to do it. I think that's becoming increasingly clear. And if you're not gonna work towards that and hopefully work towards it in a sustainable way, I think eventually you just have to stop. So what does what your current system look like from uh, just a technology and coverage point of view, are you at 100% coverage? Do you Are you still using some older line equipment that you'd like to upgrade with more efficient stuff? Because the, the new equipment is just amazingly more efficient. So what does that look like? And how would you like to evolve that system? Yeah, we've got a pretty solid system um, that was upgraded in 2008. We've got a lot of original pipe on the mountain, but it's in really great shape. The skiway as a whole, from lifts, to the lodge, to the maintenance facilities have been really well-maintained. Doug Holler, who was here for 20 years before me, did a great job and his predecessors. This place is just clean and well-maintained. Um, so that, that's very helpful. Everything is in good shape. So we've got upgraded nozzling on most of our larger snowmaking trails. So that ends up being about 50 acres. And then there's the remaining maybe 20 acres of snowmaking that is older equipment. And we definitely feel it when we're making snow on those trails that the efficiency is much lower. So I think in terms of upgrades to automate our, our racing trails would be a, a great step. The surface that we create for the ski team is one that takes a lot of snow. So to be able to automate those trails would be super helpful. And then I think upgrading the, the remaining acres of snowmaking and then ultimately going from the 70 or so acres of snowmaking to the full 104 acres would be great. I think the mountain would ski much bigger in that way. I mean, it's more acreage, obviously, but I think it would spread people out in a way that felt really good. Talk a little bit about HKD snowmakers and the relationship that the Skiway has with the Dupre family, who were the founders of HKD and have been very invested in the Skiway over the years. Yeah, it's really interesting. It kind of goes back to, you know, what we were talking about earlier about how Dartmouth is kind of a hub in this uh, wheel of skiing and ski culture. And, and while Herman didn't go to Dartmouth, I think four of his seven daughters did. Mm -hmm. okay. I, I, those numbers, <laughs> he had a lot of daughters and a bunch of them came and skied at Dartmouth. And he was very generous to the ski way. And I think in 2008, made it very large contribution to the snowmaking system and upgraded some pumps and uh, upgraded a ton of the nozzles on the guns all over the mountain. And it's been interesting to have that support so close. Right down in line is Snowmatic, which is a snowmaking automation company that uh, I think is run by or with HKD. So we've got these resources of these really smart snowmaking folks just down the road, even in this tiny little town that we live in. 
So let's talk about the lifts here, Mark. There's a quad serving Winslow side that's about 30 years old. It's a C-Tech. And for a fixed grip quad, that thing might have a couple more decades left on it. On the Holt Sledge side, you have an old Hall double. I love Hall doubles as much as anyone, but that thing is approaching its 50th birthday. Long term, what's your thinking on Holt Sledge and maybe getting a new lift over there? Yeah, I mean, we know that we'll have to at some point, right? They don't run forever. And while that lift has been very carefully maintained, it is approaching its end of useful life. You know, as we upgraded the drive, modernized the drive, I think in 2005, uh, that was done, maybe 2009. So it's running great, but it is showing some age on the chairs. You know, other than uh, on the best snow day of the year, if it falls on a Saturday, lines are a real rarity at the skiway. So when we think about replacing that lift, capacity is not a huge issue, but I know that when the time comes to replace that lift, uh, the ski coaches are going to be thinking about the 10 minute time to the top <laughs> and how do we right. cut that down and create more uh, laps in the time that the ski team has to train and that would help with capacity and uh, would help on race days and would just generally improve the experience. So I'm not sure a high-speed quad would ever be necessary, but when we replace that, we'll have to think about, does the alignment change? Is there an opportunity for a surface lift? I think it's a great opportunity for us to just rethink how that mountain skis and how we can benefit the user groups who tend to stay on that side of the mountain. And uh, that'll be a fun project to do when we get there. So I imagine you won't go with another double. Those are getting pretty rare yeah, these days. Yeah. Have you thought through, you know, are you thinking triple, are you thinking quad, are you thinking maybe a loading carpet to speed up the line if you do stay fixed grip? How much have you thought about what could go on the whole sledge side if you replace that old hall double? You know what, we've thought about triple. That seems to make the most sense. And I think that would give us plenty of capacity and a more modern triple would cut down the ride time with that certainly. And there have somewhere in some drawer somewhere exists the plans for a Palma, which the racers would always prefer to keep their skis on the ground the whole time. I've never seen that alignment. You know, I think when we think about if we'd ever want redundancy, that's maybe the opportunity for lift redundancy at the skiway would be to have some surface lift that services wardens, which is primarily racing takes place. Yeah, and that's certainly a system they use elsewhere. In New England at Sunday River, they have a racer's T-bar, Sugarloaf. They use the same system at Burke and Waterville Valley. So that would, and the other advantage is obviously that takes pressure off the main lift. So on the whole sledge side, it sounds like there's a little opportunity for redundancy. You do have those two carpets over on the Winslow side and that quad. Are you pretty happy overall with the lift network over there on Winslow? Would you like to... Have you thought at all about up upgrading that quad or are you happy with it for now? Uh, yeah, that quad is in wonderful shape. And other than the year of COVID where we couldn't quad people up, we really have no issue with capacity on that side of the mountain. And uh, I think that lift hopefully has a, quite a few more years of service to the skiway. And that side of the mountain skis really great. You know, like I said, I think when we think about major upgrades at the skiway, we're, we're going to be really focused on snowmaking and sustainability. Yeah, it's, it's interesting because you're right around that thousand vertical foot mark. And that is generally the area where folks start to think about high speed. And that is the norm in New England. I mean, given how major of a project that would be, it, it is 
Is the thought of installing a high-speed lift on either peak, is that just not even a consideration given that it costs more than double a fixed grip? Or is that something where the Friends of Skiway, maybe you could help grow that group to do a major project like that? Is that something that's even on the table, a high-speed lift? Or, or is it just not practical for a, a ski area of your size? I think at this point, it's far enough in the future where everything's on the table. It's great to have a quick lift ride, especially on a frigid New Hampshire day. But I do wonder about the cost and I do consider the, you know, the feel of the ski area, would that change it too much? But uh, I think right now everything's on the table and certainly if it were financially feasible and everything works out to get a quick lap so people can get a lot of skiing in would, would be positive. But I also think part of what makes the skiway special is that the runs are not crowded and you get a little time to think on the chair. It's not always a bad thing. Yeah. So thinking, just going back briefly to expansion here, I mean, obviously we talked about potentially expanding up or out, but there's also ways to expand within. The skiway only has one marked glade on the trail map, unless I'm missing another, this big MRO, HRO, NRO. <laughs> so I'm not, I'm, I'm not making out the, the letter here, but glade over on the Winslow side. Are there other opportunities to thin and name glades on the trail map? That's exactly right. That's the expansion that we want to see. That's the expansion that in three seasons of skiing here that I see needs to happen for two reasons. One, it, it makes the ski area ski bigger. It creates more terrain for our guests. And then it's just a simple fact of skiing. Skiing through the trees is a lot of fun. And we want more opportunities for our guests to be able to do that. And there are quite a few locations that we've identified where we can we think we can create some really fun gladed skiing. We can continue to work on NRO glade. There's a few other options off of MD on uh, the Winslow side. And then on the Holt side between Big Green and John Mack line drop those runs, there's a, a really large parcel of trees that people ski in now, but it is very tight. And I think were we to open that up would be really fantastic skiing. And that's something that we'd like to, um, you know, like through the friends group and the next phase of planning, start to see that work take place. And I think it gives us a good opportunity to be good stewards of the forest up here as well and, and identify places where glading would help the health of the forest. Is that something where it's just a matter of, okay, let's figure out where we want to do it on the hill and then get a group of volunteers together. They've done a lot of that at Waterville Valley over the past several years and in Black Mountain of Maine certainly has built out a great glade network, really all on a volunteer basis. Would you approach it more like that? Find these folks who are passionate about the ski way and come up and have a work day and maybe give them a free lift to get to redeem during the season or something like that? Or is this something that you want to approach more with your staff and your team and give them an opportunity to get some hours in in the summer maybe and do it that way? Yeah, I mean, we're incredibly small teams. If we kept it fully internal, it would be a, a, a very long process. I think that volunteer model works really great. You know, our guests feel such a connection to the skiway that they'd be really excited to help in a project like this. Also, so many of them are such diehard skiers that they'd be happy to create a, a more interesting place to ski and a more fun place to ski. Where we're at right now in the process is just uh, developing a good forest management plan where we know we're cutting the right areas and the right trees and doing it the right way. I think once we have that plan outlined, we'll be able to get the, the volunteer resources together to open some of these areas up. Looking at long-term opportunities, Mark, at the Skiway, I was actually really surprised when I started thinking. I always just assumed the Skiway had night skiing just because of its relationship to the college. 
but it doesn't. Is that an opportunity or is there some reason why you can't do that? Is that something that you've thought about at all? You know, I think it would be a, a heavy lift to light the ski away in the town of Lyme. I don't want to say it would be impossible, but I, I get the impression our neighbors wouldn't be very excited to see lights go up on, on the ski lift. I think the effort to be a, a good neighbor to the people around here in the town of Lyme is a large part of why you've never seen lights at the ski lift. Is that, a, is that an aesthetic issue? Is that a traffic issue? Is it just keeping the mountains nice and dark? And what, what, is, what do you think that is the main piece of that that would keep that from happening? I think it's just the lights. I think increasing the traffic on Dorchester Road, which is a, a small road that people live on and walk their dogs on. And I think increasing that traffic at night, I don't think would be particularly welcome. Although, like I said, everything's far enough out that nothing is, is off the table. My hunch is that Mike is installing lifts or uh, lights over at the, at the snowball. My hunch is that people will probably be asking me some questions about lights after seeing that happen over there this winter. So we'll think about it. And you certainly could see from a race training perspective, that could be a, a positive and useful thing to have at the skiway. Uh, I just don't know how much it's will ever be part of the plan. So last thing for you here today, Mark, is you put your season pass on sale at the skiway for $399. That's, a, that's the public price in the spring. And then it's off sale now until September. How did that early bird pass sale go? And how are you approaching the September pass sale ser- period as you think about how you're going to price that thing? The spring pass sale went really, really great. We were really happy to be able to offer that pass at the same price as as last year, I'm sure you're aware, as anybody listening to this is aware, like nothing is cheaper than it was right. a year ago. So we are very value minded at the skiway and we want to keep skiing very affordable and be as reasonable as possible. But our expenses have increased and we felt it was time to increase prices a little bit. So there'll be a little bit of a price jump for those people who aren't able to take advantage in the spring, but um, we'll still be well within the similar prices last year when we come back in September. Still a really great value if you grab your tickets for Halloween. All right, Mark. Well, with that, I'll give you your day back. I really appreciate it. Cannot thank you enough for your time today. Sounds like the Skiway has some really exciting things happening, some really good momentum. So I wish you uh, incredible success in the future. And uh, thank you very much for sharing all of that with us today. Hey, thanks, Stuart. It's really nice talking with you. That's Mark Adamchak, General Manager of Dartmouth Skiway, New Hampshire. Thank you very much for that, Mark. Leading a small ski area in a region full of large ski areas is a very tough gig, and I am frankly really impressed with the direction you're taking the joint in. I think there's a big future for small ski areas, and Dartmouth is positioned to take advantage of skiers' collective search for something less frantic and less expensive than the Megapass experience that has become our default ski day. Thank you all so much for listening. So many pods coming your way. I've got Timberline, West Virginia in the can, plus a really cool episode that I recorded earlier this week, Bali Nevado, Chile. That's my first South American podcast and my first with a Mountain Capital Partners ski area. So many more scheduled and the very best way to get those episodes as soon as they are live is to subscribe to the Storm Skiing newsletter at stormskiing.com. New pods appear in your email box several hours before syncing with the podcast services, including Apple and Spotify. There are free and paid tiers of the newsletter, and paid subscribers do receive podcasts three days before everyone else. 
You can also follow the Storm on Twitter, Threads, and Instagram at Stormski Journal. Until next time, stay well, stay safe. I'm Stuart Winchester, and I'll talk to you again very soon. The Storm Skiing Podcast is a Quicksilver Films production.